And I'd like you to open to your Bibles, Matthew. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. You'd open to um, Matthew. Um, Matthew 8, 17, we were looking at our first uh, category of usage yesterday. We're talking about ways the New Testament uses the old. And when you're preaching, when you're teaching, if you're writing a paper, you're dealing with an old and a new reference, what you want to do is scan through these 12 uses and say, is this direct fulfillment of prophecy? Is this fulfillment of indirect typological prophecy? Is this uh, an analogical use? Is this a symbolic use? So on, so on, and so on. And uh, you'll be troubleshooting, if you will. And it's going to be one of these. There probably are more uses of the Old Testament than I have here. I wouldn't claim that these are the exhaustive, uh, this is the exhaustive list of, of all the categories of use, but it's what I have found so far in my uh, years of studying Old and the New since about 1975. So, um, uh, again, if you you think you've come up with a use that's not on here, let me know. And next time I lecture on it and revise my book, I will uh, will include it. So let's look at Matthew. chapter uh, 8, verse 17, because it's going to be the last example we're going to look at that is um, an example of direct prophetic fulfillment. So Matthew 8, and verse 17, (laughs) beginning of verse 16, and when evening had come, they brought to him, that is Jesus, many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits of the word and healed all who were ill, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Let's open the class in a word of prayer. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and understand your word in order that you may prepare all of us to teach it and to preach it with uh, clarity, with confidence, with conviction, with the persuasion of the spirit. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, what's interesting, uh, this is uh, introduced with a fulfillment formula. And it's unusual because in Matthew, most of the fulfillment formulas introduce what we call event prophecies or indirect typological prophecies, which I'm going to, I'm going to give a full uh, uh, lecture on tomorrow. Though we'll look just a little bit at it again this morning because it is our second use as you'll notice here to indicate indirect fulfillment of old testament typological prophecy so we'll, we'll look at that look at a few examples but tomorrow we'll have uh, probably a three-hour lecture on it because i believe it is so important um so as we look at this uh, uh it, it does in, in the way that you determine how do you determine if something is direct prophetic fulfillment? Well, it's pretty simple. Go to the Old Testament. If it's a prophecy, 
Did you get a fulfillment formula or similar synonymous sorts of uh, introductions or the context indicates it and it's quoted, then it's directly fulfilled in the New Testament. So this it's a pretty easy one. Uh, so this is a, a direct verbal prophecy, as we saw in, in Micah chapter 5, direct prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And, and it's quoted that, yes, Messiah uh, would be born in Bethlehem, and Jesus was clearly fulfilling that in Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> and we saw also in uh, uh, Luke 4, 17 to 21 yesterday, where Jesus goes into the synagogue, reads the scriptures, and uh, it's Isaiah 61, and then he, he uh, sits down and says, this, this prophecy uh, is fulfilled in your midst, which is very interesting. He doesn't say it's been inaugurated. Um, it says fulfilled, but obviously in context, it's, it's, it's inaugurated. And, and that's a, one of the great restoration prophecies from the book of Isaiah. So it's beginning fulfillment. So um, the task of actually identifying a direct prophetic fulfillment, I don't think is that hard. But the greater task is sometimes, what does it mean? And in this case, this is very interesting. Um, we're in verse 17. He, he, he is quoting here uh, Isaiah uh, 53, 4, and, uh, where it says he himself took our infirmities, carried away our diseases. But you'll notice that it is a... Uh, fulfillment to explain why he was healing people bodily, um, as well as casting out spirits. And um, of course, he had just healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and, and um, uh, focus in verse 16 is casting out demons, but probably also bodily healings, as it says at the end, and he healed all who were ill. Um, and so this is, this is interesting because when we think of Isaiah 53, we think about really the penal substitutionary atonement that the servant uh, would, would execute. We usually think of it as a prophecy of the redemption of God's people through the work of Jesus Christ as the suffering servant. But this is not seen as fulfilled at the cross. This is seen as fulfilled in his uh, earthly ministry through physical healing. What would you, I mean, if you're preaching on this, what, how would you uh, explain this? Because most of your people, if they're familiar with Isaiah 53, will understand it as a prophecy of uh, the messianic servants uh, substitutionary atonement. Um, anybody, why, why would this be seen as fulfilling Jesus' healing of people's bodies as well as casting out demons. Of course, those two were of a piece sometimes because uh, people were bodily suffering because of the unclean spirit in them. Um, have any ideas here? Uh, I know this is a pretty sharp class, so. Satan uh, Satan was complete and all-encompassing, and he showed him that his kingdom, give us a glimpse of his, his kingdom. Okay. Okay, is that what Isaiah 53 is about? I think it's showing that he is fulfilling uh, his uh, mission as a servant to serving uh, his people as in his, in his, in his earthly ministry. And one of the 
policies of the servant is to heal and to serve the people. Yeah, and, uh, Isaiah 53, of course, verse 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, or our sickness he bore, our sorrows he carried, um, or our pains he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, pierced through for our transgressions, pressed for our iniquities. And it goes on and really talks about what we rightly, by the way, interpret as, uh, in my opinion, being a substitution. And um, and yet, uh, this passage in Isaiah um, uh, probably, I, I, I would think, in, includes uh, deliverance from uh, the captivity of uh, sin and the sinful world. Uh, but when you look at this in the context of uh, Matthew, um, certainly what did Jesus' miracles indicate? For example, when he rose, when he, when he um, raised Lazarus from the dead, or in Mark 2, when he heals the paralytic. He was the Messiah. <laughs> yes, and he was the Messiah. But, but what are those? Yeah. What are those? He's reversing all of the various effects of the fall. Yeah, that's beautiful. But he's introducing new creation at that point. Yes. That gets us a little uh, away from Isaiah 53. Yeah. Would it be that thinking of the um, presuppositions that we said yesterday, it would be that it was a fulfillment of the eschatological fulfillment? Would it, would it bring it into that? Of uh, what? Eschatological? That Christ is the. That, 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 that he is the, the, the Messiah. Well, if you think of the miracles, really, uh, yes, they, they are actual historical um, miracles. You don't want to allegorize them, uh, but they do have meaning beyond the miracle itself. The healing of the paralytic indicates that Jesus can heal people spiritually, ultimately. The, the raising of Lazarus indicates that, indeed, there will be a greater resurrection with, with Jesus uh, Christ. And so I think all of these healings indicate, ultimately, they point uh, to the cross. And so I think here we have a healing. We have healings, and so it's a very appropriate because this healing points to the cross, and so I think that's that's why uh, Isaiah is is pulled in because the the spiritual healing there uh, Matthew sees as including physical healings because those physical healings in the gospels, all the gospels, point to what's going to happen uh, either at death or resurrection. Um, but but you see, just to say that this is direct prophetic fulfillment you haven't finished the task. You can categorize it, but that doesn't finish the task. You've got to often explain. Like in, in, in Luke 4, I think it's important to say, you know, this was a restoration prophecy in, in Isaiah. Jesus is beginning his true Israel to restore uh, Israel as that figure in Isaiah 61 was to do. So, but this is a little bit of a tricky one and you really have to have a good grasp on the gospels the role of miracles and their parabolic significance to really answer uh, why Isaiah is uh, pulled in at this point. Uh, any questions on that one? Because that's a that's a tough one. Um, yes. Um, how do you deal with the line which takes that? Okay, so healing is included in the atonement. Therefore, we should we shouldn't really get sick because because of this verse. 
because I think it doesn't pay attention to the role of parables. The role of parables is that the healings, the physical healings, point to the greater healing. And the point is the climax of the greater healing at the cross. Now, it's true that, you know, there's, uh, I'm sure all of you have heard uh, uh, this saying, the health and wealth gospel, especially popularized in some big American charismatic churches, so that if you're faithful, uh, God will bless you materially. Uh, this is also something very prominent in uh, uh, other, other parts of the world, believe me. Um, and so actually, I agree with the health and wealth gospel. But the problem with the way people understand health and wealth gospel uh, in, in, in many sectors of the world today who are Christians is that they that, that they have an over-realized eschatology. They think it's got to be in this life. There's nothing more healthy than a final eschatological resurrection. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I believe in it, but um, not in this age. But uh, when this age is consummated, yes. Now, God may be gracious. And to point forward to our final resurrection, just as in the Gospels, he may certainly bless us materially. He may bless us with a physical healing etc. But all of that is to, he breaks in sometimes to point forward to uh, the ultimate uh, health and, and, and wealth. And we'll, call it, well, it is wealth in the city is gold and uh, revelation and with the uh, precious gems and that, that sort of thing. So I do believe that's uh, figurative. So um, uh, let's move to the second one, and if uh, there are not any questions about direct prophetic fulfillment, if there are, ask now, and then, then we'll move on to the second one. Yes? So just clarify from yesterday, we sort of began looking at the one we were looking at, Matthew 2 and 3. Yes. Where they don't have a fulfillment. No, from the, that's right. But that comes under this first point, so you're saying that there are some that do have that yeah. fulfillment formula. Yeah. You don't have to have the fulfillment formula to have fulfillment of direct uh, 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 prophecy. Um, so it's it's clear from the context of chapter two that Micah is being fulfilled in Jesus. Um, in, in other places, it'll say this is what, uh, for example, I, I gave the example of um, uh, Matthew 3 3. There we do get a formula, but it's not fulfillment. In Matthew 3 3, it just says, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Well, clearly that is expressing the concept. So you don't have to have the wording, though often you do, but more often you don't. And so it's just like, if you think, uh, we don't wanna make the word concept confusion. I'm sure some of you may have heard that in biblical classes somewhere. That is, you don't have to have the word to have the concept. So for example, um, uh, in the past, there have been some biblical scholars who have given the impression if you do, if you study all the words in the Hagiazo word group, the word for sanctify, Hagias, Hagiazo, Hagiasmos, if you study all the words in that word group, then you have mastered uh, the full concept of sanctification. Well, no, there are other words for sanctification, there are other uh, uh, discussions in, of sanctification where the word is not used. I, I've also confronted this when I wrote my book, The Temple and the Church's Mission. One of the things I argued that was fundamental to my book was that Eden was a temple. And, um, but the word temple isn't used there. 
and some have objected to my view because the word temple or sanctuary or holy place is not used there. And then I go on to show uh, in about 10 different ways how Eden does resemble later temples, but still the word temple isn't used there. Uh, so I, I conclude by saying if it smells like a temple and it tastes like a temple and it feels like a temple uh, and it begins to look like a temple, it's probably a temple. Um, but then Ezekiel 28 actually says there were sanctuaries in Eden. And that word sanctuaries is used for various sanctuaries elsewhere in Ezekiel and the prophets, sanctuaries in Israel's temple. So, so actually later we do have the word. Um, so, uh, which intriguingly, the person who's objected to me most is Daniel Block, who's written the commentary on the book of Ezekiel, and he's objected to my view the most, that Eden is a temple. I go to his commentary, he says hardly anything about the word sanctuary. I couldn't believe it. Now, Dan is a good, his colleague, he's a friend of mine, we talked together at Wheaton, uh, we have a polite little uh, dialogue going on uh, in that regard. In fact, uh, a Feshrik was written for me a book, book purportedly in honor of me when I turned a certain age. And um, he wrote the first essay. And right at the beginning of the essay, Beale's wrong about the temple. So it's, it's fun to have a, um, a, a book like that and, and which people are disagreeing with you. So, um, so that, that, his objection, just so we understand. Um, so you can knock it down. He, he believes that all of the, uh, just because Eden, if you make all these comparisons with the later temple, all that means uh, is that the later temple is like Eden, not that Eden is like the later temple. Okay. And my view would be it goes both ways. Why would I don't think go one way? So my view would be that it goes both ways, that scripture interprets scripture, later scripture interprets earlier, and uh, uh, earlier scripture interprets later. So I would say it's a mutual thing. But then Ezekiel 28 seals it. It says that there were sanctuaries in Eden. He, he doesn't discuss it. And he doesn't even bring that up in his essay. So if he were, I haven't had, I'll be honest, I haven't had opportunity to, um, I, I, I haven't um, uh, mustered up the courage to uh, ask him, why didn't you talk about sanctuaries from Ezekiel 28 in that essay? Uh, in my fest trip about the temple. But anyway, he's a, he's a dear colleague. He's a wonderful uh, uh, scholar. And uh, I, I recommend his commentary. It's probably kind of a commentary on Ezekiel. So anyway, I, I, that's too much of a rabbit trail now on the word concept, <laughs> the word concept uh, issue. But you don't want to make the word concept mistake on the fulfillment issue, okay? So um, there are many different ways in which fulfillment is indicated. Here's just a synonymous expression for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet. But sometimes you don't even have that. Um, uh, you'll just have a narrative about Jesus and then you'll have the quotation then the narrative will continue and you can tell from context. Uh, and this is why context is so important. If there's a quotation and there's no formula and you go back to the Old Testament and it's clearly a direct prophecy, then it's unlikely that the author in the New Testament is using that just as an analogy. It would be, oh, this is like that prophecy. That's kind of weird. Really, it, it probably is being used the way, uh, you know, this genre was. It was prophesied. Why quoted here in the New Testament? Because it's beginning fulfillment. 
So burden of proof would be on someone to show it's only an analogy. Uh, okay, it's possible, all things are possible, um, but not all things are probable. All right, let's go to the second uh, use. Thank you for that question. Uh, very good question. Um, any other questions before we move on? Um, and, uh, you know, as questions, questions may arise and we can come back. So secondly, to indicate fulfillment of Old Testament typological prophecy, as I've said, I don't, uh, I've referred to this before, we're going to go in depth tomorrow on it, but basically, um, this is uh, what I, we can call this event prophecy. Events foreshadow and point forward to uh, events, institutions, persons, or things in the New Testament. When I say things, what do I mean? Well, the brazen serpent is seen as pointing forward to Christ in John 3. That's a thing. So, um, uh, as I said yesterday, uh, and, and, and I will elaborate more tomorrow, uh, five main ingredients to a type. <clears throat> Anybody remember the five? It's a scary question to ask. Um, first of all, you have to have a correspondence between the Old Testament uh, person of an institution or thing. Secondly, it has to be within the sacred record of historical scripture, okay? Within the historical sacred record, okay? Um, thirdly, um, it is something from the New Testament perspective that you see more clearly than the Old Testament authors saw it. So we call that, it's retrospectively better understood. So you have this retrospection that because of your stance in redemptive history, you can see it more clearly than the Old Testament author. Notice I say more clearly because I think there may, in, in, in uh, many instances, there may have been some consciousness on the uh, Old Testament narrative writer's uh, viewpoint that the event that writer was recording pointed forward beyond the event itself. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow. Uh, fourthly, um, it points forward. <laughs> it's not just retrospection, but it points forward. And fifthly, there's escalation. Remember, we talked about going from the Passover lamb to the lamb Jesus, that's escalation. Going from a serpent to Jesus, that's escalation. Um, so uh, those are the five elements. And it's especially, it's this second aspect of prophecy that we're talking about here in number two uh, that uh, is it, very important in the Gospels. It's very important in Paul. It's important throughout the whole New Testament, um, as, as we will see. Um, and within this, we could have a subcategory called completion of intended design. Completion of intended design. Let me give you an example of that. Oh my gosh, where am I? Uh, have, have we got the, uh, have they made those photocopies yet? Not yet. They haven't come back. You want to ask yeah, uh, yeah, please. I I need those now. Uh, let's take a look. 
take a little breathing exercise or something. Yeah, yeah, if there's a question, that's good. Even in the temple, there seems to be a de-escalation instead of an escalation. Um, mainly what we're talking about here is relationship of old to new. Okay. okay? However, um, whether that is a de-escalation or not, I think it's hard to say because they're both temples. And God is dwelling in them. One minute. Thank you very much. And God's dwelling in the temple. I would say that it is an escalation to some degree that is Israel's later temple, because when you look at it, it is very clear that it symbolizes the whole cosmos, whereas it's not as clear in Eden that that is the case. You, you can see three sections in Eden. There, there are the living waters where Yahweh is, and then the, you have the holy place where Adam serves as a priest, and then you have the outer um, uh, uninhabitable territory. And so in the temple, you have holy of holies, holy place, and then the courtyard. So you do have that, but uh, it's really clear in Israel's temple that the holy of holies represents the invisible heavens, the holy place represents the visible heavens, and the courtyard represents the earth. Now, that was really part of a rabbit trail, so I'm not going to go into why uh, to demonstrate that symbolism. I could do it immediately, but I don't want to take the time unless I don't bring my hand up here. So, um, just quickly, yeah. um, regarding the five epistles, so you got correspondence, you have historicity of the sacred record, you have then um, uh, uh, retrospection, then you have pointing forwards. For foreshadowing, and then you have escalation. Those, those are the five elements. And if you remember those five elements, you have the definition. All right. Um, what I'm going to show you when the handouts come in is as an example of the completion of intended design, uh, I'm going to show you Genesis 128, uh, where it says, And God blessed them and um, uh, said rule and subdue, uh, increase and multiply, rule over uh, the birds of heaven, uh, creeping things on the earth, fill the earth. Um, and I'm gonna show you, and you'll, you'll have this as a handout, uh, that, that probably is one of the most repeated statements in Genesis. You find it throughout Genesis, but not just Genesis, the whole of scripture. That probably is the one that's repeated, quoted, or alluded to more than any other verse in all of the Old Testament used by the later Old Testament. And um, uh, in fact, I, I know already of two dissertations that are that have focused on just uses at, at some point later in the Old Testament. If you're interested in ever doing a doctoral dissertation in Old Testament studies, that would be a good candidate. You know, see see what's been. Uh, done in those two dissertations, and uh, I think there's a lot more territory to, to work with. Um, so uh, the point is, why do I bring that up as an illustration of um, the completion of intended design? Adam was intended to uh, completely obey. He was to complete uh, that reign. Yeah, thank you so much. That's okay.
So we're emailing them to those of you who are online as well. Thank you. Okay, so you can see here, uh, uh, we can flesh out what I just said. Um, <coughs> is everyone that one? Okay, everybody's got it. Okay, you can see this, uh, there are three pages of Genesis 128, and you can see how it's applied to Noah, and then to Abraham here, here, and here in chapter 22. And then it continues. Um, now I don't want to try to exegete all of this. I just want to show you uh, how much this is uh, applied. And um, basically with Noah, it's applied the same way to Adam. But once you get to Abraham, there's a blessing. Uh, and, and, and this, oh, for us, I should say another way, certainly blessing with Adam. But there's a promise of a seed. You don't get that with Adam. Um, and, you, and you don't get that with um, Noah. Of course, you get Genesis 3.15, um, which is that the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. And it's probably that that is brought up in the Genesis uh, 12. But for the first time, you get a promise inserted into the commission. In, uh, in Genesis 12 and the repetitions to Abraham. And then in chapter 26, these are the repetitions to uh, Isaac and, uh, and then to Jacob, 28 and 35. And then to all of Israel in chapter 47, you can see that it, that actually it begins to be fulfilled in, uh, in Israel. Israel lived in the land of Egypt and Goshen. They acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous, you can see. And it repeats... Uh, it repeats that also in Exodus 1, three times, in, in uh, very similar wording, continuing to allude. In fact, you can see Exodus 1, 7, 12, 20. And then, very intriguingly, in Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 36 and 37, and other texts, there are only a few, you get eschatological prophecies where uh, is, uh, Genesis 1, 28 is used, where it will be finally carried out. And so, um, the design of ruling, subduing, of uh, uh, bearing children, ultimately spiritual children, um, and filling the earth with divine glory uh, through image bearers will take place in, in the future. Um, and so, and, and we know uh, from parts of the old and then especially in the new, how it will take place. It will take place through uh, the Messiah. So um, basically, it's very interesting to see that promise inserted because it's only a command, really. Uh, yes, it's a blessing. Adam has been, he's the crown of creation. Now he's given this, 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 this uh, mandate as the crown of creation, but it's a command, uh, a commission, often it's called. And, um, and so it is to Noah. Then you get this repetition mixed with promise 
beginning with Abraham. And so what's interesting about that is really uh, this covenant that God makes with Abraham is not just promise. It's often taken that way. It contains the command, but there's promise mixed in it. So it's command and it's promise. In fact, in chapter 17, Abraham is giving commands is to fulfill. So it's both command and it's, it's, it's promise. Uh, and the command really is that hey, you're expected to do what Adam did. So that the mantle of Adam is handed on. Uh, they don't fulfill it. Israel doesn't fulfill it. Finally, in the eschaton, someone will fulfill it. And it is uh, it's Jesus Christ. Um, uh, you'll notice at the very bottom, I talked about uh, son of man and son of God. We talked about son of God yesterday, how son of God is named for Israel. We know from the Old Testament, but it's also named for Adam. So Israel's a corporate Adam. And here's another way that we see Israel's a corporate Adam. They get the mantle of Adam. They get Genesis 1.28 applied to them. And, uh, and then Jesus fulfills it as finally the Adamic slash Israelite son of God. So when you see son of God, yes, it's ontologically significant and he's divine, but it's also functional. He, he is uh, uh, the last Adam carrying out uh, what Adam should have carried out. And so son of man, uh, that mainly comes from Daniel 7, though maybe with the background Psalm 8 and Psalm 80, but mainly Daniel 7. And, and, and there in verse 14, uh, it's not by accident in chapter 7, Verses 13 and 14 of Daniel, that the Son of Man is to rule over the world. And, and so actually, that's probably picking up specifically, I, I argue, in my New Testament biblical theology, it's probably not just picking up Genesis 1.28, but it's picking up mainly more directly Psalm 8, and it's, an, it's, it's references back to Genesis 1.28. But nevertheless, the Son of Man is seen as an Adamic figure in Daniel. Why? Because of the illusion. Illusions are pretty important. Okay. Again, you want to look at that book, Old Testament and the Old by Sondra. Uh, it's not exhaustive, but it's very, very good. Um, okay. I, I shouldn't go further on that, but that is a subcategory, I think, of typology. The lack of uh, fulfillment in this Genesis 1.28 points to a fulfillment. Now, we're going to look further at that, that the lack in a command, a especially when it's repeated. When, when, when you have a command repeated within a short space, a short literary space, um, uh, and it's not fulfilled, it points forward. Now I'm gonna argue that further. I'm not gonna take the time to argue that now. Um, so, but, but to show you fulfillment of intended design, for example, in, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse six, um, and, and by the way, these are types, but I think they're better understood as uh, uh, pointing forward in terms of uh, a fulfillment that must take place to complete the uh, commissioning design. So in uh, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6, Jesus says, but I say to you something greater than the temple is here. He's been talking about David and eating the showbread in the temple. And, and Jesus makes the statement about himself, something greater than the temple is here. So that uh, uh, the temple points forward to Jesus. And what was to take place in the temple 
points further to Jesus, which is both sacrifice and uh, fulfilling the cosmic design, which was part of the temple. And Jesus is going to uh, really completely create a new heavens and earth uh, that the first temple pointed to, the Israelite temple. Chapter 12 and verse 41, again, we have a similar statement. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they're they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So you see the escalations here very clearly with the greater language. And then uh, verse um, uh, 42, uh, the queen of the south shall rise up with this generation with the judgment shall come in because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Uh, now you, you could say these are just types. Um, some might say they're just uh, analogies, but, um, but I, I don't think so. Um, but they, they may specifically be uh, uh, fit in this category of completion of intended design in terms of what kingship was to be in the case of um, Solomon and um, what, uh, how Jonah functioned in relation to uh, Jesus. He wasn't just a preacher, but he's someone who suffered uh, a death and rose again in three days. That's the significance of Jonah. Um, but that's, that's sort of Jesus fits the design of Jonah. So um, now I think that this, uh, uh, this first category, these first two categories here that we're, we're, we're talking about, um, fulfillment of uh, direct fulfillment uh, of Old Testament prophecy and indirect fulfillment, one and two, I think that these really, I think they dominate uh, the uses uh, of the old and the new, though we're going to see in number uh, four, an analogical use of the Old Testament. Uh, that's a good contender with the first two. That we, we might even say that, the, that one and two and four together really dominate the uses of the old and the new. I, I haven't uh, actually done a calculation. I haven't counted up the direct fulfillments the logical and, and the analogical. I'm just giving you uh, an impression I have. So, but before we get to number four, number three is to indicate affirmation that a not yet fulfilled Old Testament prophecy will assuredly be fulfilled in the future. So here we're talking about not fulfillment in the present, but uh, fulfillment in the future. What's underscored is this is not being fulfilled now. It will be fulfilled in the future. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's coffee. Yeah, you, have, you all have to tell me these things. Okay. So um, when we come back, we'll look at... Um, I thought you had a very profound question. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back and look at number three.